Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our stars tonight are Miss Agnes Moorhead and Mr. Ray Collins. We have seen these two expert and resourceful players in Citizen Kane, The Magnificent Amberson, in which Miss Moorhead's performance won her the 1942 Film Critics Award. Mr. Collins will soon be seen in the Metro-Golden-Mayer Technicolor film, Salute to the Marines. Miss Moorhead and Mr. Collins return this evening to their first love, the CBS microphone, to appear in a study in terror by Lucille Fletcher called The Diary of Sophronia Winter. The story told by this diary is tonight's tale of suspense. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with the diary of Sophronia Winters and the performances of Agnes Moorhead and Ray Collins, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. February 1st, St. Petersburg, Florida. I, Sophronia Winters, have hereby begun this diary because on this date I feel for the first time that I've begun to live. Diaries are no good unless one has thrilling experiences. For 40 years, I've never had what could really be called a thrilling experience. But Papa's death has changed everything. Here I am in beautiful St. Petersburg with everything to start life anew. Money in my purse, two suitcases full of new clothes, and a gorgeous new permanent wave. And Florida is really the land of romance. It doesn't matter whether you're 17 or 70. There are parties and dances and bingo games and flirtations for all. My landlady, in fact, tells me that people often become engaged and even married to perfect strangers overnight. I'm still shy, of course, but just the same. It's such fun and so thrilling to think one's fate may be just around the corner. February 3rd. Oh, diary, it is beginning. This morning when I came out of my lodging house to go down to the beach, I noticed a man, a thrilling-looking man, sitting across the street on a bench. It was just as though he were waiting for me because when I came out, he sort of started up as though he knew me. Of course, I didn't speak first, but I knew the minute I started down the street that he was following me. Well, I got to the beach and sat down with my magazines, and suddenly there he was, strolling toward me with a broad smile. Well, sitting out here all by your lonesome? Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Didn't I see you last night over at the Starfish Tea Room? The Starfish Tea Room? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes, I was there yesterday. But it was so crowded, I'm afraid I don't recall. Quite a nice cuisine they've got over there. Mind if I sit down beside you? Oh, not at all. Oh, oh just a minute. Uh, sit on this magazine. The beach is so sandy. Oh, sand doesn't bother me. I'm from Maine, you know. We get plenty of sand up there. Do you? You've been down here at St. Pete long? Oh, just three days. Three days? That's a long time. <laughs> it's a wonder I didn't spot you before. Oh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Johnson's the name. Hiram Johnson. Oh. I come from Green Harbor, Maine. Run a big hotel up there, Summers. Oh. Well, that's my whole history in a nutshell. My name's Sophronia. Sophronia Winters. Sophronia? Uh-huh. Well, you know, that's quite a coincidence. My sister-in-law's name was Sophronia. Oh? Uh-huh. Sophronia Johnson. 
You ever heard of her? She looked quite a bit like you, too. Sonia Johnson. No, I'm afraid I haven't. Who was she? Someone very famous? <laughs> I'm so ignorant about these things. Oh, that's all right. Say, look at that sun, will you? I'd say it was pretty nearly time for lunch. And Diary, darling, he is wonderful. Strong and kind, warm-hearted. So generous. I don't want to be like the other silly women in this town, but Hiram is different. There's, there's something almost poetic about him. Something sad and, and deep. You know, Sophronia, it's kind of mysterious us finding that nine-point starfish on the beach together. My sister-in-law, Sophronia, used to collect nine-point starfishes. And to think your name, Sophronia, and you find a nine-point starfish with me. Well, it kind of draws us together, eh? Huh? What do you think? As though I'd known him all my life. My landlady says it's foolish. But look at Romeo and Juliet. Weren't they foolish? What's the good of waiting, Sophronia? I've got to be back at the hotel in a week. We, we may never see each other again. Oh, Hiram, don't say that. I, I couldn't bear it. Then let's do it right away. Tomorrow? There's a parson out on Coral Avenue who'll do the job for us. We can take a nice moonlight drive out to the alligator farm afterward, have a nice shore dinner, then climb on board the orange blossom tomorrow night for Maine. <sighs> Just think of Maine. The big dark pine woods, the sand, the bay. The two of us alone together. The two of us alone together. February 7th, on board the Orange Blossom. I was married in a wedding dress of Alice Blue Moiré with a frill of white organdy at the collar and wrists. And a rhinestone belt buckle. Hiram sent me talisman roses. I'm pressing one precious flower between the pages of this diary for luck. You'll see it beyond this bend in a couple of minutes. Uh, bags heavy? No, not particularly, dearest. Oh, I can't get over that taxi man at the station. Imagine his insolence, saying he couldn't drive us over. <laughs> Maybe he didn't have any gas. It happens sometimes around here. Well, anyway, I'm glad the weather's so mild. Can you imagine what it would be like in a blizzard? There's the place. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to look until I put down these bags. <sighs> now, where? There. Through those big pine trees. Oh. Oh, it is big, isn't it? 125 rooms. So many fire escapes and balconies and porches and towers. <laughs> I uh, I stayed in a hotel like that once years ago with Papa. It was very fashionable there. My grandfather built that place 50 years ago. Hasn't been changed much since. No? <laughs> well, of course, you've put in modern plumbing. Not yet. Here we are. Walk in. Oh, what's that? Just a foghorn out in the bay. Fog? We get it almost every night in this kind of weather. What are you locking the gate for? Why not? There's nobody coming in after us. Or going out again for a while. But I, I thought you said the hotel. The hotel is empty. Hiram. What is it now? Hiram, darling, I know it sounds silly, but, but let's not go in there tonight. Let's, let's wait until morning. Why? Oh, just because it's so dark and empty, there's not a light in the whole place, and no one's expecting us. What do we eat? Where will we sleep? 
Let's stay in the village just for tonight. I've got things to eat and a place to sleep. Come on. Oh, my arm. Hiram. Hiram. Do you remember my telling you down in Florida about my sister-in-law, Sophronia? Well, that's her over there on the wall. Take a look at her. Hiram, you hurt me. Oh, well, this glass is very dusty. She must have died many years ago. But her face is sweet, very sweet. And her eyes, it, there's something very sad and wistful about her eyes. She was a murderess. She was hanged in Portland 25 years ago for the murder of my brother Ephraim here in the lobby of this hotel. She murdered him in cold blood with an axe. That fire axe hanging over there on the wall. Hiram. It was a summer day. There were guests sitting out on the front porch in the rockers. It was just after lunch. My brother Ephraim was sitting at the desk counting his loose change. My mother was crocheting in that old wicker rocking chair. Sophronia came downstairs humming a hymn. Oh, don't, Hiram. Please, please don't tell me any more. Why not? Well, it makes me nervous to hear it like this in this big shadowy lobby. And, and your eyes, Hiram. Your eyes. Hiram, you're acting so strange. Hiram, what's the matter with you, dear? I, I know it was a terrible tragedy, but it happened 25 years ago. Don't touch me, Sophronia. Don't touch you. Do you remember what I said to you in Florida? What did you say? Well, you, you said a million sweet and wonderful things to me, Hiram. I said you resembled my dead sister-in-law. Look at her again. Look at her closely. Sophronia. But why? Oh, no, no, I can't. It's too horrible. I can't look at her face with any pleasure now, knowing she was a murderess. You're afraid to look at that? It? No, no, I'm not afraid. Hiram! Hiram, please, my arm! Well, very well. I'll look. Now, stand there quietly. Like that. Take off your glasses. Uh, that's all I wanted to see. That's all I wanted to see. February 13th, Green Harbor Hotel, Maine. I can't understand it. I try to fathom it, but my head aches and my heart is heavy. The hotel is deserted. Has been for 25 years. Everything is covered with spiders and cobwebs. Great dining room with its oak woodwork is alive with rats. And the row of broken rocking chairs on the front porch faces emptily out to sea. Does he mean this to be my home? He's downstairs in the shabby parlor, off the lobby playing the harmonium. Yes? Yes, Hiram? Sleeping? Uh, no, dear. Why is your door locked? Come out. I want to show you around the place. It's... it's all right, dear. I, I've seen it. I, I've seen just about everything. No, you haven't. You haven't seen the grounds at all. The grounds? But, Hiram, it's after midnight. I want to show you where my sister-in-law, Sophronia, is buried. Tonight, dear, please. It's so late, and I, I have a headache. Open the door, Sophronia. 
I want you to come now. No, no, I shan't. Oh, go away and let me alone. I won't. I, I won't. I won't. No use carrying on like that. You see, I, I have pass keys to all the doors. Beyond, where those four birches are standing, it's where my sister-in-law, Sophronia, was laid away 25 years ago. It was the biggest funeral in the neighborhood. Folks crowded outside the gate with the dozens trying to get a look, but we wouldn't let them. Buried her ourselves without a service out here by herself on the grounds. Ephraim was buried in town, but not Sophronia. I had a feeling I'd have to keep an eye on her even then. Keep an eye on her? I knew she was one of those restless sleepers who wouldn't stay quiet in her own grave. I knew before the year was out, she'd find some way to start roaming around, hunting for mischief again. She was a young she-devil to the core, Sophronia. They could hang her till doomsday. Wouldn't do any good. You mean... You mean he... You think she haunts this hotel? No, no, not this hotel. She never had any use for it, alive or dead. No. She makes for the warmer climates. She was always a cold-blooded little fish, freezing and shivering all the time. Places like California and Texas and Florida, she makes for. Florida? Yes, that's one of her favorite haunts, particularly around St. Pete. She likes the flowers and the sun and the romance. Hiram, I feel cold. Do you mind if I go inside Just now? a minute, just a minute. I, I haven't explained everything. You think I'm crazy, I guess. Crazy. But I'm a lot smarter than some people give me credit for. Because, you see, I have found her now. Three times. Do you see that grove of birches over there? Under every one of them's a grave. I found her wandering the earth in disguise three times. And I've killed her three times. And it still doesn't do any good. She's still restless. You... You mean you... You've killed three different women? So now I keep another open grave to remind her. It's waiting now. Would you like to see it, Sophronia? No, Hiram. No, no, please, I... Are you afraid to see it, Sophronia? No, I... Hiram, you don't mean to say that you think... Just because my name happens to be Sophronia and that, that I look a little like... Think what, Sophronia? Nothing. February 14th. My mind is made up. I've made a terrible mistake, and I must get away from this place. I must get away from Hiram as quickly as I can. <coughs> it should be easy. There's no fog today. If I can only escape from the hotel, I can run and hide in the pine woods. No. No. I shall wait for dusk when he generally sits down in the parlor and plays the harmonium. <coughs> I can hide a little earlier in one of the deserted rooms and, and, and then when his back is toward the lobby, step out the front door. There you are. 
What's the matter? Anything wrong? No, Hiram. You didn't want anything outside, did you? Because if you do, you'll have to ask me to get it for you. You see, I always keep the front door locked. Yes, Hiram. Yes, the back door, too. And all the doors leading out into the porches and fire escapes. And a good many of the windows. It makes one feel safe from thieves and peeping toms. Oh, you've got a cold. That's too bad. Yes. I must have caught it last night. Outdoors. The damp. You ought to be in bed. A good bed. The only good bed in the house is in my sister-in-law, Sophronia's old room. No, no, Hiram. I'm all right. Is, is this a little head cold? Oh, little head colds <laughs> often develop into pneumonia. Why, it's too bad I didn't think of that before. You might have slept in it from the beginning. Here, up these stairs. What? What's the matter? Are you so weak? No. No, I'm all right. This room is the cleanest in the hotel, too. I've always had a sort of suspicion about it. You see, I've kept everything as it was. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. It's just... It seems kind of familiar. No, no, no. It, it's just that seeing it so clean, seeing it as though someone were living here, as, as, as though they it only just stepped out for a moment. It's as she left it that afternoon when she walked down to murder my brother. You see her needlework on the table with the needle sticking in it? And her hymn book still open? Mm. She was very fond of singing hymns, Sophronia was. Had a nice voice, too. I used to accompany her. Uh, I'll turn down the bed for you. Then you can get undressed while I go and make you some hot tea. No, I don't want any. Here's the closet. You can put on one of Sophronia's dressing gowns. Diary, I'm beside myself. I shall go mad. I shall go mad. Two hours have passed since he locked the door upon me. Night's fallen and I'm alone. Alone in this horrible room with its hideous little mementos of death. I, I'm sitting here at her little wicker table trying to become, trying to write this. Somehow when one writes about a thing, it, it doesn't appear so real. My hand is just brushed against her needlework. Her hymn book, where they still lie, waiting. I can bear having them near me no longer. I must get them out of sight, anywhere. In that closet, a bureau door. Ready for your tea? No. Uh, yes, Hiram. Why aren't you in bed? You'll take worse colds, you know. I'll get in bed in a minute. Uh, first, Oh. I... Brushing up on your needlework again? My needlework? You've got it in your hand. Have I? Oh, oh yes. Yes, so I... Uh, but I, I wasn't working on it, Hiram. I swear I wasn't. I, I, I've never done a stitch of needlework in my whole life. I don't know one embroidery stitch from another. Now, let me show you. Look, I don't even know how to hold a needle. Get into bed, Sophronia. You're feverish. Before we go on, Hiram, before you go on thinking, I, I, we've got to have an understanding. You've got to let me explain. I... I I was born in 1892 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. My name is Sophronia, that's true, but they name lots of people Sophronia. I, I, I was named for my grandmother. She had just died. No, 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 you've got to listen to me. I've lived in Kalamazoo all my life. If you'd only just write a letter or send a wire. Well, I've never heard of Green Harbor in my whole life. I, I never went anywhere. For almost ten years, I stayed home day in and day out nursing Papa. He had, he had a stroke. I wasn't out of the house. 
It was a red brick house with a green shutter. February 15th. Now I live only from moment to moment, listening to each creak upon the stairs. <coughs> I've been in bed all day. It's night now. The foghorn has begun to blow again. February 19th. I, I woke up early this morning after a wretched night and... And the date was burning in letters of fire in my brain. If he's planning to kill me, it'll be today. But the hours have been crawling on. It's almost midnight. Oh, why, if he's going to kill me, doesn't he do it at once? Why does he torture me like this? I'd rather be dead than sit here in this room one moment longer. I can't bear it. If he doesn't come in five minutes, I shall force him to come. I shall beat on the door. I know. No. Rather let me sit quiet praying that he doesn't come. Oh, I want to live. I want to live. Sophronia. She's come. Sophronia. Come downstairs. I want you to sing me a hymn. Sing? Sing? He, he never asked me to sing for him before. But she sang. I... I can't sing, dear. I, I told you that long ago. Did you? Well, I've forgotten. And besides, how can I come downstairs when my door is locked? It's unlocked. Try it. Unlocked. Oh, no. How could it? Oh. Oh, it is. It is. And I never know it. I never know it. Coming? He unlocked it. Sometime while I was just sitting. Oh, why didn't I try a few more times? Why did I just sit there assuming? No. No, he'd have caught me anyway. He'd have known. But I might have... Oh, now it's too late. He's going to kill me. Sophronia. Yes, Hiram. I'm coming. Hiram, where are you? In here. In the parlor. What are you doing there, Hiram? Waiting to hear you sing. You're at the harmonium? Yes. All right. I'll sing. I haven't sung in years, but I might as well. I'll sing for you out here in the hall. My voice will carry better. It always did carry better in the hall, didn't it, Sophronia? So you remember that, too. Of course, you know both the front and back doors are locked. Play a few bars, Hiram, dear, to warm me up. Shall I sing too, Sophronia? Would you like me to sing along with you? 
If it pleases you, Hiram. Work for the night is coming. Work in the morning sun. Work for the night is coming. When man's work is done. Work while the daylight Shall, shall I read it to you? Yes. Yes, go ahead. March 22nd. I've been sick, I think, for a very long time. The pages of my diary are blank, but I shall take you out again, poor diary, today and start you over again. No. No, I shall never look back at the other pages. I shall only write on and on about this beautiful place so that no one reading this diary will ever know that I did it. <laughs> but I did do it, diary. I was smarter than he. When I opened that door at the head of the stairs and heard the music, when I saw the fire axe still hanging on the wall. <laughs> oh, I was so cautious. So terribly cautious. I tiptoed like a little mouse, even as I sang the hymn into that room where he was playing. But I was clever, so much cleverer than he. I kept on singing. And now I'm free. Free as a bird. I'm free and he shall never catch me now, not this time or ever again, because... Because he's dead. Isn't he, Ness? Nurse, isn't my dear brother-in-law, Hiram, really dead? Yes, miss, he's dead. And now I'll thank you to hand me that diary. The doctor doesn't approve of the patient's writing anything. And so closes The Diary of Sophronia Winter, starring Agnes Moorhead and Ray Collins, tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday when Richard Dix, Gail Page, and Montague Love star in Death Flies Blind. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Ted Bliss, the director, Lud Gluskin, the musical director, Lucian Mohawick, the composer, and Lucille Fletcher, the author collaborated on tonight's Suspense. 
is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ronald Coleman inviting you to radio's most dramatic half hour, Favorite Story. the favorite story you're about to hear. Many claim that it is the most eerie and harrowing story that was ever written. The Turn of the Screw by the great American novelist Henry James. Edna Best, who is responsible for some of the most pleasant evenings I have enjoyed in the theater, will be the governess. The tale is told by a man named Douglas, who, on a dreary November evening, was sitting about the fire with some friends. They had gotten on the subject of horror stories. And Douglas, for his part, had remained silent, listening to the others. But when the long pendulum clock in the library told that it was far past midnight, Douglas left the room and then returned to the group a few moments later with an ancient brown envelope. While the others watched in silence, he opened it and drew out a manuscript written in pen and ink in a dainty feminine hand. The pages were thin yellowed with age. And as Douglas stood with his back to the fire, the light shone through the paper, making it glow with a light which seemed almost its own. My friends... I have listened to your stories with suitable breathlessness, I think. I especially like that tale of Griffin's about the ghost, or whatever it was, appearing to a small boy. But it's not the only case I know of its charming kind, where a dreaded horror touches a child at a tender age. If the child gives the effect of another turn of the screw, what would you say to two children? Remarkable. I'd say that two children give two turns. And we want to hear about them. Well, my story differs from yours, my friends, in one particular. It is true. It did happen to a very dear friend of mine many long years ago. Now she's dead now, and in her will she left me this manuscript, which I have never disclosed to anyone until now. Uh, tell me, sir, do you mind uh, reading it to us? No, I think not. If you will listen charitably to this story out of the past, when men lived differently, and perhaps more graciously than they do today. Uh, she writes, I remember the beginning of my adventures at Bly with an odd sense of foreboding. I obtained I my position as governess by answering an advertisement in a London newspaper. In a London newspaper. I seemed to meet the qualifications, and so I traveled into the city for an interview with my future employer. He was very gracious and handsome and pleasant to me. But there was one thing about him that seemed very strange. You may not wish to accept employment with me when you know one of my conditions. And what is that, pray? Never. 
While you are in my employ, never are you to trouble me. Why? Neither appeal, nor complain, nor write to me about anything. Never. Your duties will be light, but you will have complete responsibility. Are there children? Two. I did not know that you were married. I'm not. These are the children of my late brother. I am their guardian. Oh. The boy is away at school. You'll have him only during holidays. Little Flora will require lessons, which, as governess, you will provide. Of course. May I ask, sir, was there a previous governess? There was. May I inquire why she left your service? She died. Oh. Now, will you accept my conditions? I... I accept. Excellent. You'll receive all monies for the household from my solicitor. Tell me, shall I keep a master bedroom always in readiness for you? That will not be necessary. I never visit Bly. I hardly knew what to expect at this country mansion which I had never seen. I was half tempted to resign my office before I so much as arrived. And I would gladly give what little I own in this world if I had resigned. If I had never seen Bly. But I did go. And I was agreeably surprised. I remember my first glimpse of the house in the warm summer afternoon. The broad, clear lawn. Bright flowers overhead the clustered treetops. To my young eyes, Bly seemed like the castle of some legendary prince. And I thrilled to think... This mansion was to be in my charge, and within these gates, my word would be law. Hello. Hello, Miss. We're glad to see you. Oh, good afternoon. I have the pleasure of addressing Mrs. Gross. Oh, of course, you are the housekeeper. Your room is all prepared for you, ma'am. Tea will be ready in an hour. Oh, we are glad to see you. So glad to see you. Glad to see me, I thought. Why did this come from Forsyth housekeeper clasp my hand so? Why was she so glad I had come? She seemed frightened somehow and relieved to have someone to help her bear the burden of her fear, but what could it be that she was afraid of? There was no mark of it in little Flora. I can imagine no child with a more angelic beauty, a more perfect sweetness in her face and manner. She insisted on showing me all about the mansion at Bly. In a sort of personally conducted tour. And this is another bedroom. Oh, it's nice. And this is Uncle's bedroom. What a lovely room. And what a pity he never comes to see you. He never comes. He doesn't like to visit us. Mm, more's the pity. Now tell me, Flora, where do these stairs go? Oh, you don't want to go up there, Miss. Why not? Where do they lead? To the tower. Oh, there must be a thrilling view of the countryside from the tower. Must you see it? Yes. I should love to see it. My little guide in her bright blonde pigtails led me up the stairway to the Tower of Bly, and the view was indeed unforgettable. One could look out for miles on all sides, across the green groves of trees, across the great expanses of lawn and garden, almost to the border of the sea itself. The tower was a square platform, notched with battlements like an ancient fortress. And I felt for all the world like Sarah Elaine in Mallory's tale, waiting for Lancelot to ride up to me on horseback, 
along the drive below. I want to go down now, Missy. But why, Flora? It's so beautiful here. I don't know. I want to go down. I could not imagine why the child did not like the tower. At her age, I would have considered it the most heavenly place for a child to play. And then a strange thought occurred to me. It was not that little Flora herself did not like the tower, but she did not want me to go there. How are you getting on with the little lady, miss? Oh, she is a dear. She is so quick with her studies, and I think she likes me. I'm sure of that, ma'am. And just wait until little Miles comes home for a holiday from school. He'll win your heart completely. Oh, there's a letter, ma'am, came by the late post. It's from the school that little Miles goes to. It's addressed to Mark. Oh, I'd best to open it, Mrs. Gross. Uh, he gave me strictest instructions not to bother him with any details. Very well. Why? Well, this is incredible. What, miss? From the authorities at his school. They say that little Miles is being sent home. For a holiday? No, he's being expelled. They don't want him back. They say he's an injury to the others. I don't believe it. Is he bad, Mrs. Grove? No, never. Little Miles never did an injury to anyone in this world. Why, he's a perfect gentleman. What could he have done? Doesn't the letter say, ma'am? Only that his behavior makes it impossible for the school to keep him on. They're sending him home by coach. He'll arrive tomorrow. See him, See him first. Then try to believe it. by all these happenings. Late that afternoon, just as the twilight was settling over Bly, I went for a stroll to try to clear my brain and think these problems through. The air was distant here. The path where I walked was already in shadow, but the last rays of the sun still touched the treetops and the few clouds high above my head. Slowly, I began to feel an odd sensation, as if I were being watched. And yet there was no one near me, in the garden or along the lawn. I looked back toward the house, and I saw a man in the tower, hatless, watching me from the very tower which Flora had showed me so reluctantly a few days before. I was quite shocked, for I could not imagine who it could be. It was not one of the servants. It was a very strange-looking fellow, tall, with red hair, close curling, and a pale face, long in shape eyebrows as red as his hair were art, and his small blue eyes stared at me fixedly. Hello? Who's there? Who is it? In the tower? He made no answer. Just looked. Then walked along the battlement slowly, following the flat of his hand, the notches in the tower wall. And as I watched, he moved away from me and disappeared behind the battlement. Mrs. Gross, there's a man in this house. Oh, no, miss. Only the groom and those below stairs. No, I saw him. It's not one of the servants. He was in the tower, watching me. What did he look like? Well, I saw him quite clearly. He wore no hat, and he had red hair. Oh. You know him? A tall fellow with a long, slender face. But good-looking remarkably. With high, curved eyebrows and beady blue eyes. Yes, that's the man I saw. Oh, you do know him. Quint. 
Quint? Peter Quint, the master's valet. He never wore a hat. And after the master left, Quint was put in charge. What became of him? He... He went away. Went where? He died. Died? Yes. Mr. Quint is dead. This is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James the favorite story of the famous comedian, Mr. Edgar Bergen. The man before the fireplace is reading the words of a dead woman, and his guests, gathered in a circle close about him, listen with rapt attention. It was perhaps a trick of the firelight, or it may have been a tear which fell down the cheek of the storyteller. In any case, he paused in his reading. Uh, shall I go on? By all means, do. You must. We must have the ending. It is rather difficult for me to read this letter, written so many years ago, because I know that the events I'm about to recount for you caused the shortness of her life. And you loved her? Yes, I suppose I did. Oh, well, no matter now. Uh, the governess goes on to write... I hasten to assure you that my vision of Peter Quint in the Tower of Bly was not, not the usual, usual sort of ghost appearance. There was nothing unearthly about him. To my eyes, he was real. A man of seeming flesh and blood seen clearly in the bright sunset. His every feature was impressed on my eye as on a photographic plate. And every feature that I described was confirmed by Mrs. Gross. There was no doubt. The figure I saw in the Tower of Bly was that of a man who had died six months before. No one knows what killed him, ma'am. They found him at dawn on a winter morning, stone dead at the edge of the road from the village. There was a terrible gash in his head. He was murdered? No one knows. The coroner decided he must have slipped on the icy slope and fell, and so cut himself that he died. I only know that Peter Quint was an evil man. He did terrible things, ma'am. Kind of thing. Oh, I couldn't put it in words. There are no words for such things. Peter Quint and Miss Jessel. Miss Jessel? She was the governess before you came. A wicked woman. And what became of Miss Jessel? She went away, too. And she died. So they are both dead. The pair that used to have charge of this house. And they had charge of the children, too. Miles and Flora. Why did the master tolerate such servants, Mrs. Gross? He has an easy way with him, ma'am. The master never sees the bad in people. So it seems. Oh, I must be off to the village if I'm to meet the coach with little Miles. Are you the new governess? Yes. And you must be Miles. I'm never so pleased to know you. And it was very kind of you to meet my coach. Well, it was my pleasure. May I help you under the carriage? Why? Thank you very much. You may take us to Bly, driver. He smiled at me. This little gentleman with the Eton collar and the polished good manners. 
could this innocent little gentleman have done to cause the school authorities to expel him? Miles and I came into the downstairs drawing room at Bly. I saw the man again. Peter Quint. In the half-light, outside the window. Looking in with his fearful blue-white eyes. Suddenly, like an icy wave, the realization came over me. The dead man, outside the window, was trying to... To reach the child... To grasp and hold him in his power. For what sinister purpose, I dare not imagine. You can imagine how little I slept that night and why. It was one of those feverish summer nights when a person cannot bear the weight of a bedsheet and a wind hot as from the mouth of a furnace blew through the open casements and down the corridors. Far off, I heard a door slam, and my candle flame bent in the strong draft and went out. In the darkness, I made my first resolve. Whatever evil force was at work in Bly, I would protect my little charges from that evil. Noiselessly, I got out of bed, put on my robe and slippers, and climbed the stairs, intending to look in on the children and see that they were sleeping soundly. From the library, I heard the clock chime the hour... Ever so quietly, I turned the knob of Flora's bedroom door. Flora? Flora? The child was gone. Her bed was empty. As in the broad moonlight by the French windows, I saw a strange woman, gaunt, pale face with a black dress like a shroud, hair as dark as a raven pulled straight back into a tight knot at the back of her head. Her face was like chalk in the moonlight, and she was laughing with thin, contemptuous lips. At the sight of me, she paused, unfolded her arms, and walked past me through the door so close that I could have touched her, and then vanished down the stairs. Mrs. Gross! Mrs. Gross! Ma'am, now, what's the matter, ma'am? Little Flora has disappeared. What is it now? Flora is not in her room. Oh, she must be there. Wait, as you came up the stairs just now, did you see anyone? See anyone? By the light of your candle, did someone pass you going down as you climbed the stairs? Who, ma'am? A tall woman, dressed in plain black, with a face like milk and black hair pulled straight back to a knot. Miss Jessel. Is that what Miss Jessel looked like? And thin lips that parted but never showed her teeth. That's the woman. She just left Flora's room and went down the stairs. But Miss Jessel is dead. So is Peter Quince. But they are both moving into this house. They are after the children, Mrs. Gross. Why? The Lord alone knows why. What's the matter, Missy? Is something wrong? Flora. Flora, where have you been? Asleep in my bed. But you weren't there a moment ago. I looked in. Your bed was empty. I was there all the time. Truly I was. But I knew the child was lying. For all the innocence on her face. For as I lifted her into bed... I saw blades of fresh-cut glass clinging to her cold little feet. Gradually, I began to realize the spirits of the dead Peter Quince and of the governess who had preceded me were trying to influence and control these two children as they had influenced them in life. I had heard that a strong personality might exert itself beyond the grave and even occupy the soul of a living person. 
that perhaps the strong will, the spirit of a living being thrown across this terror might shatter the contact between the children and the evil which threatened them. It must be my will, my living spirit, which would save them. Oh, dear me. You win again. Will you play me one more game of checkers? No. Please, just one more game. Miles. Why don't you ask Peter Quint to play with you? Or Miss Jessel? They're dead. But they are still about this house. You see them frequently, don't you? I have seen them, too. Oh. Oh. The boy's face froze in a sort of blank shock. I went to the casement to see if Flora was still packing flowers in the garden where I had left her. She was nowhere to be seen. Flora! Flora! Mild, where has she gone? I, I don't know. You do, you detain me here, playing checkers to give your sister the chance to get away, didn't you? You planned this so that Flora could get away with her, with Miss Jessel. It's true, isn't it? It's true. I, I, where did they go? You know, where are they? So late. The night! Flora. Flora. Where is Miss Jessel? Jessel? Yes, and Peter Quint. I saw them both here with you. Where are they? I had never seen such an emotion on a child's face. At the mention of the governess's name, little Flora seemed to grow old before my eyes. I clutched her and her dazed little brother, one in each arm, and pressed them close to me. Then on the other side of the lake, where Miles and I had stood about a quarter of an hour before I saw the spirits again. Peter Quint! Miss Jessel! I can see you! I know you are there, and I know why you are there. But the terror of you cannot touch these children. I will stand forever in your way. Peter Quint and Miss Jessel began advancing towards me as if there were no lake between us. Stay back! Stay back! I felt as if a black waterfall were advancing upon me soon to engulf me in its night. Or that I was standing in the bottom of a pit of evil and there was no escape, no pinpoint of daylight to give me hope. But I would not yield! passed through the bodies of the two infants who clung to me with their faces buried in the folds of my skirt. It was a shock as if something had been wrenched out of their little bodies, as if an axe blow had fallen, cleaving in twain the good and the bad. Where did they go? They have left you. They are gone now. Gone forever. Arm in arm. The three of us walked back to the mansion house at Bly. 
through the warmth of the quiet afternoon. So ends the turn of the screw by Henry James. Until the day of his death, Henry James was plagued with thousands of letters from curious readers asking what the author meant by this story. Were the ghosts real or only imagined in the mind of the governess? Did the children really see the dead servant? And what was the evil that Peter Quint and Miss Jessel tried to inflict on Miles and little Flora? Well, Henry James replied by saying that he only meant to suggest the horror and to let the reader imagine the evil for himself. Edna Best is to be congratulated for her performance as the governess, and our thanks to Mr. Edgar Bergen for suggesting The Turn of the Screw as his favorite story. Next week, a tale of magnificent irony, The Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg by Mark Twain. Dennis Day chose this intriguing and delightful story, the story of a town whose foundations were shaken by the vengeance of one man. We hope you'll be listening. (laughs) 